Yes, there are two Bible readings this morning. Um, we're starting in Mark and then, in mo- then moving back to Matthew. So Mark chapter 1, <clears throat> starting at verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, because he taught them as one who had authority, not as teachers of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he travelled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralysed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, 
and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralysed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. The second uh, Bible reading is uh, from the book of Matthew, starting uh, in chapter 11, starting at verse 11 and going through to verse 26. Truly I tell you, among those born of women there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than thee, he. From the days of John the Baptist till now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating or drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came, eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. Wonderful. Thank you, Jenny. Um, Please do... Keep your Bibles open at our Mark uh, passage, which is uh, from uh, chapter 1 and verse 16 following. I'll lead us briefly in prayer. Heavenly Father, again, we thank and praise you that you speak to us powerfully by your word and in the power of your spirit that's at work within us. Please do so now as we consider what it is uh, that you say to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I suspect that most, if not all, people in this room are familiar with the old saying, before you criticise someone, walk a mile in their shoes. 
Many of you will know that I have a juvenile sense of humour and that I appreciate the oft-touted response to this, which is, yes, that's a really good idea because when you do criticise them, you're a mile away and you have their shoes. The sentiment, however, expressed is really quite good. If you want to learn about a person, imagine what it's like to be them, to be with them, to experience what they experience. I say that because our world, and sadly, even often our church, can forget that Christianity is about knowing a person. It's not a set of religious truths, even though those things are important. It's, it's about knowing a person, that he, he, the one who is at the heart of Christianity is the one whose name it's given to. Jesus Christ is that person from whom we call ourselves Christ ones and have Christianity. And wherever you are on the spectrum of faith, uh, whether you uh, are not yet someone who identifies as a Christian all the way through to what did Mel call the seasoned soldier who's been following Christ for, for a long time, finding out about a person is always far more enjoyable and, and, and sort of easy than finding about propositions and religious uh, ideology. I remember as a little kid, every now and then going to this pizza restaurant, and it was one of those old school ones where instead of having the, the kitchen kind of shut off and all at the back, it was like right at the front there was a big glass pane and the dude was kneading the dough and then like putting around and spinning it and doing the whole chucking up thing, right? You get a six-year-old kid and you say, let's learn about pizza from a recipe book or you can sit in front of this guy and watch. Obviously, you know what they're going to choose, right? Learning about a person is just enjoyable and entertaining. And so from finding out about Christianity through to being spurred on in the faith that you've had for 50 years, walking a mile in the shoes of Jesus is always both helpful, yes, but also enjoyable. And I say that because today we actually get to do that. Well, we get to do even more than that in this part of Mark's gospel. We not only walk a mile with Jesus, we actually get to spend a whole day in the life of Jesus. You probably didn't notice it was red, but uh, I'll show you on the screen. In verse 21 of chapter 1, uh, the day starts on a Saturday morning, which is what Jews would have understood by the, the, the expression, when the Sabbath came. Point of order, it actually starts on Friday night, but when you say when the Sabbath came, that means Saturday morning. Uh, and then from verse 29 of chapter 1, we're in the middle of the day where Simon's now healed mother-in-law, as you remember, kindly uh, makes lunch for, for Jesus and uh, his, his disciples. And then from verse 32, we get that in the evening, Jesus does a bunch of healing and exorcisms. And finally, 1 verse 35, just before the dawn of the following day, we've got Jesus praying to his heavenly father about what he's about to do the next day. Given that just before this part of the gospel, we've learned of this world-changing movement that God is putting into effect, a movement we call the kingdom of God, well, this day in the life of Jesus is really a day about learning what the kingdom of God is, learning about the character of the kingdom as we really learn about the character of the king. But just before we get into that, notice also who gets to see this day in the life of Jesus. Look in your Bibles from our starting verse, verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Normal, everyday, Joe Blow people in the middle of nowhere. Verse 17, come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And there will no doubt be a few of us who, as they read that part in their Bibles, think of the song that goes, I will make you fishes. Okay, yeah, now I've just ruined that. <laughs> 
Verse 18, at once they left their nets and followed him. When he'd gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets, or possibly mending their nets. Same deal, just doing their ordinary, you know, vocation. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Who gets to spend a day with Jesus learning in a really sort of dynamic and helpful way about what the kingdom of God is? The answer is anyone and everywhere. Ordinary, unimpressive, normal people. People just like us. Uh, You don't have to have some sort of special thing going on to be someone who can learn about Jesus and the kingdom of God. So whoever you are and wherever you're at in your relationship with God, let's enjoy spending a day in the life of Jesus and seeing what it teaches us about the movement that God has begun and that continues to this day and will continue into eternity. Point one on your outline, if you're a note taker, Jesus goes about advancing the kingdom of God by teaching what it's about. Verse 21 They went to Capernaum and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. And that begs the question, well, in what sense is this teaching of Jesus one that carries authority, that separates him from what they're normally used to? The teaching in the synagogue happens to be the Tanakh, the Old Testament, right? This is our Old Testament. Scroll is open and someone teaches. What's different about what Jesus does with it? Well, we know that he's teaching about the kingdom of God. From just a few verses before this, I think verse 14 and 15, before our passage, that's the the big announcement. The kingdom of God is, is at hand, repent and believe. That's what Jesus goes about teaching. And as the king of that kingdom, though, Jesus, unlike anyone else, is able to give really powerful illustrations to what he is teaching the kingdom of God advances and if it's really happening well things opposed to the kingdom of God i.e spiritual or physical uh, sickness things that are come about uh, as a result of our fallenness well they should start to come undone and we get an example of that from verse 23 this is how Jesus teaches with authority with illustration that the kingdom of God is at hand. Verse 23, look with me in your Bibles, verse 23. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, what do you want to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? (laughs) Answer, yes. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching? And notice, and with authority. This is the authority bit. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. And so naturally, as you can imagine, verse 28, news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. We already know the basic gist of Jesus' teaching, like I said from verse 15, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. And there are many places throughout the Old Testament scriptures where you could teach that. But here Jesus illustrates the truth of his claim by showing that the kingdom of God truly is at hand. The kingdom of Satan, under whom all sinners naturally reside, is indeed being overthrown, as you see with the the exorcism of demonic forces and spirits. Now, I've got no doubt that the content and the manner 
of Jesus' teaching would also have been rightly described as authoritative. I mean, he's sinless, he's the son of God, he spoke the words of the Old Testament, right? He, he's the perfect preacher. But that Jesus can prove his claim that the kingdom of God is at hand and he can do it by supernatural example is what it means to say here, I think, that Jesus teaches with authority. And therefore, we expect not just demonic spirits under the, the realm of, of, of Satan, but also physical sickness, the kind of things that point to death, which is, of course, a result from the fall. Those things get overthrown. Verse 29, look again in your Bibles. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her by the hand. He didn't have to take her by the hand, but he's making it very visual took her by the hand and helped her up. Uh, the fever left her and she began to wait on them. Uh, that's not Jesus saying, you know, we're hungry, so we better get the person who knows how to cook, right? It's uh, what in that day and culture would have been an extraordinary honour and it's to show the complete comprehensiveness and immediacy of the healing. The fact that she can do what she normally would have done in that circumstance in complete, perfect health. As those ex-fishermen spent a day in the life of Jesus, they saw, and we now see, that he's on about advancing the kingdom of God and that he does it through the teaching and the proclaiming of the good news that God's kingdom is at hand, but he does so with authority, with powerful illustration. The illustrations and proofs are also, therefore, very popular. And so, verse 32, that evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak, because they knew who he was. Now, I've got to leave that one on a cliffhanger. We will find out later why he doesn't want the demons to reveal his full identity. It's the only last thing they've got. Well, we can tell you we're not going to let them do that. Why is that a thing? We're going to find out later in the Gospel of Mark. But for now, our day in the life of Jesus has shown us that the kingdom of God is real and that it involves the overthrow of the effects of our sinfulness. Jesus has been healing all kinds of sickness and driving out demons such that crowds are flocking to him from the whole town. Which is why it might come as a surprise, at least initially, that this day in the life of Jesus was an unsuccessful day. It was not a good day in the life and ministry of Jesus. We'll see why that is as, point two on your outline, Jesus now goes on to show his disciples that the priority for the kingdom work is the preaching. So again, look at your Bibles from verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Well, of course they are. And you can imagine how desperate and excited these, these former fishermen, come disciples, would have been, and, and, and how dumbfounded that Jesus would go anywhere but stay where he was and keep doing, because he's on the winning ticket. He's got the whole town flocking to him, and it's only day one. But then comes the shock. Verse 38, Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there 
also. That is why I have come. And so he travelled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons, i.e. preaching and with authority. Jesus shocks the disciples and possibly us by showing that the signs, the illustrations, aren't the big deal. It's the teaching that matters, not the illustrations, no matter how powerful they may be. And in Jesus' case, they were divinely powerful. They were supernatural. In fact, we're going to go further on this because the Bible does. Jesus choosing to leave at the height of popularity from Capernaum, actually implies that these people in Capernaum had by and large not repented and believed. They have not embraced the kingdom of God. The Gospel writer Matthew, and this is why we had that second reading, recorded what Jesus ultimately concludes about Capernaum in his 11th chapter. And for this one, I will put the words on the screen so you don't have to flick your pages. Matthew chapter 11 from verse 20, then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed. Why? Because they did not repent. Remember his teaching, repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven. I did all the miracles. I show that this was the legit teaching, but you did not repent. Ergo, I denounce you. And he begins to do that. If you remember from the reading, verse 21, woe to you, Chorazin, and woe to you, Bethsaida. On he goes about them. And then verse 23, and you, Capernaum, Will you be lifted to the heavens? No. You'll go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it would be more, more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Those who form the kingdom of God, those who make up the kingdom of God, are those who repent and believe the gospel. It's not... Be miraculously healed or be miraculously exercised and you'll enter the kingdom of heaven. No, it's repent and believe. Believe in the gospel. The real kingdom of God advances through the preaching and teaching of the gospel, not through the supernatural healings and miracles that were designed to reinforce that teaching. Now, God can and no doubt occasionally does do such wonderful things. As a matter of fact, I've regularly and even continue to pray for supernatural healing for many people. And there certainly will come complete spiritual, physical healing and renewal when God's kingdom comes on earth as it currently is in heaven. That's one of the profound and great hopes, one of the greatest reasons for being a follower of Jesus. There will be no more sadness, sickness, death, mourning, crying, pain for those who are in Christ Jesus on the last day and into eternity. But that's not where things are now. And it's a disaster when people get carried away with thinking that that's where things are now to the point that the gospel gets sidelined and repentance and belief is no longer the big deal. I also went to summer school this last week. It was absolutely wonderful. And I had the great joy of chatting to a couple, uh, a young couple expecting their first child and, and, and she... Uh, happens to have cerebral palsy, I think that is, I hope I haven't got that wrong, but she, it's hard for her to walk and stuff and the speech is a bit slow. She's absolutely wonderful all there, but, but, but um, got, got a condition. And um, in, in the conversation, she was telling me that it's very hard for her to walk 
where she walks through through Parramatta on the, the way to work without once every couple of months having someone approach her and say, can I pray for your healing? And the expectation is that this, this woman is not a follower of Jesus and, and, and they'll pray for the healing, she'll get healed and, and ergo be a Christian. And she says it's always really difficult for her to navigate because she is a follower of Jesus, right? And she knows that her status before God is not somehow tied to her physical condition. As a matter of fact, I consider it not only a, a blatant false teaching that comes from the prosperity gospel, but also, frankly, an insult. You suck. Your faith is useless. Why? Because you're a cripple. If you had more faith, you'd be doing better. I mean, in effect, that's what is being communicated, is it not? On the scale of one to highly inappropriate, that's where that sits. And the poor thing is she said, and now that I'm pregnant and I'm getting a bit more moody, I'm worried about how I'm going to respond the next time it happens. It's just people touch her and stuff, you know, like strangers on the street, oh, you know, to pray over and whatever. And On that first day in the life of Jesus, his new disciples, ex-fishermen, have learned that you can actually be so distracted by supernatural healing that you miss the gospel, which is what happened in Capernaum. You can be so invested in the supernatural miracles precisely because you're not invested in hearing the good news and repenting and believing. That is Jesus' diagnosis of what happened here in Capernaum. Now, thankfully, Jesus' ministry lasted more than one day, you'll be pleased to know, and the disciples got to learn more of the character of the kingdom of God going forward. In the next two sections of Mark, Jesus shows them and therefore shows us how it is that the kingdom of God actually does take root in people's lives how it is made possible for people to repent and believe and what it means for them when they do point three on your outline jesus shows us for those who do enter the kingdom it's because he removes the very cause of their fallenness not necessarily all the effects but the cause of their fallenness uh, continue from verse 40, chapter 1, verse 40 in your Bibles, it says this, A man with leprosy came to him, that is to Jesus, and begged him on his knees, If you're willing, you can make me clean. Now, if you know your Old Testament law, you'll know that this man, on account of his leprosy, his skin disease, whatever it is, would have been isolated from people and isolated from God. He could not approach the temple, he could not approach others. As a matter of fact, he might have had to yell out, unclean, if people came near him. Notice he does not ask to be healed. He doesn't say, if you're willing, heal my leprosy. He's actually a little bit more switched on this guy. If you're willing, you can make me clean. That is, to use the words in the Levitical law, ceremonially clean able to be back in fellowship with God and with neighbour. Verse 41, Jesus was indignant. That is, Jesus was so willing to put him back in right relationship with God and neighbour, so willing to make him clean, that he looks, frankly, with anger and disgust at even the possibility of the suggestion that he might not be willing. And so, continuing verse 41, he reached out his hand and touched the man. That hand's an important touching that's going on there. I'm willing, he said, be clean. Because once upon a time, you touched the leper. What does that mean for you? You also are ceremonially unclean. But Jesus is willing. He reached out his hand and touched him. Verse 42, immediately the leprosy left him. And he was 
cleansed. Which, like I said, that's astounding because normally whoever touched the leper would themselves become unclean. But here, because there is nothing impure in Jesus such that he should ever be isolated from God or neighbour, he remains unaffected. That is, until he doesn't. Verse 43, Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning, see that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. In other words, go and show people that you're now legitimately able to be back in fellowship with God and with neighbour according to the Jewish law. But, rather understandably, not rightly, but understandably, he does something else. Verse 45, instead, he went out and began to talk freely. And, and the word used here is literally the word for preaching or proclaiming, the kind of thing Jesus has been doing. He went out and began proclaiming, spreading the news. And as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet people still came to him from everywhere. To put it simply, Jesus traded places with this guy with leprosy. Though perfectly clean, Jesus would yet, in a manner of speaking, be cut off from God and man in order that this man could be reinstated before God and neighbour. And of course, all this is a really great, obvious teaching on the reality of the kingdom of God, that Jesus ultimately does this for you and me. We are unworthy and unwilling uh, uh, by ourselves naturally to be repentant and faithful. We are unclean, we cannot approach God and therefore we are out of peace with our neighbour. Jesus, though perfectly clean, trades place with us in his death on the cross to take the penalty for our uncleanness. Now, of course, in the, the example at, heart, at hand with this, this, uh, this guy who formerly had leprosy, all of this so far is to do with ceremonial or outward cleanliness. See, even leprosy is on the outside of the body, right? So it's a rash. The Old Testament law is, is often more to do with symbol than the actual reality. It points to the reality of sin, which you can't see. But it makes us wonder at this point, and I wonder if the disciples were wondering too, well, can Jesus also do not only what is required to make someone ceremonially clean, but in reality to free them from the penalty and the consequence of sin? And of course, the staggering answer is yes, which is why Mark writes about the incident that he writes next. Chapter 2, verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. In other words, where he left off before going away, they basically all come, you know. And so expect all the healing again. But continue verse 2, and he preached the word to them. But that didn't dissuade everyone. Verse 3, some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get to him because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowering the mat the, mat the man was lying on. Uh, one of the all-time funniest Bible comics I've seen is you've got four guys and, and, and a dude, you know, a paralysed guy on a mat, digging through this, this roof and there's a dude sitting on the couch and they look down and they say, oh, sorry, we got the wrong house. So they go to the next one, right? Um, I suspect this is very familiar to all of us, 
but you can see their drivenness and determination. And it's a wonderful thing. It is actually really positive to help their mate who's he's crippled, he's paralysed. And they, they will take anything and anything they could possibly get. And they know Jesus can do this, so they dig through the roof. Verse 5, incredible expression. When Jesus saw their faith, I think it's the faith of all of them, the guys and the, 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 the paralysed man, he said to the paralysed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Uh, which is uh, like a little bit we've seen earlier in Capernaum, the shock that people would have had at this if they were on side with the guy, which you'd hope they would. Isn't he supposed to say, bang, you're healed? You know, no. Jesus teaching the word. He's made it clear that repentance and faith are the big deal to enter the kingdom of God. The healings are the illustrative and the material and the proof, but he's on about repenting. And in order to do that, well, you've got to be forgiven. So he gives the man his greatest need. His greatest need is not the physical healing. Much as that will be wonderful, his greatest need and anyone and everyone's greatest need is to have their sins forgiven. And what a stark way of showing it. But that created a problem. Verse 6, now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And it is a fair question. If I, um, I don't know, smash Mel's mic in front of her and then I, I, I said to, to Owen, please forgive me. There's something stupid about that, right? Mel's the one that's got to forgive me. The, the, the offended party is the one who's got to forgive, right? Jesus come and say, your sins are forgiven. Well, all sins are ultimately and only ever always against God. And Jesus is saying, I, I can forgive you. And so... That's actually a fair challenge. Verse 8, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts, i.e. he did the thing that only God can do. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? Obviously, the easier thing to say is the latter. I mean, it's impossible for anyone, but it's still easier to say, get up, take your mat, walk, and to say that legitimately than to say your sins are forgiven. But that said, a healing would be visible, would be observable, would be tangible. And it could therefore serve as an illustration of the unseen reality of having the sins forgiven. And so that's what Jesus chooses to do. Verse 10, but I want you to know that the Son of Man, that's Jesus, has authority on earth to forgive sins. I can speak for God. I can make decisions on God's behalf. And so he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And of course, verse 12, he got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this, which is both really good and really bad. It's really good because, hey, they're praising God, Yahweh, which is awesome. They recognize that he's somehow the one that's behind all this. Jesus obviously does speak for God. But rather than marveling at what they saw, did they also listen to what Jesus was teaching? Did they come to the point of believing Jesus could forgive their sins such that they turned back to God in repentance? We're not told. In any event, it is clear that God's kingdom is one in which the root cause of our fallenness is dealt with. Not just the symbol, but the reality. That's what we've, we've got to hear. 
And it advances by gospel preaching and teaching. That's what we've learned in the day, plus a few other days in the life of Jesus about the kingdom. Now, I will say a few more things about this and draw out some implications for us in just a minute. But firstly, it actually makes sense for me to ask, uh, has your greatest need been met? There are many who heard Jesus' call to enter the kingdom and who saw the truth of what he taught confirmed by powerful miracles who yet still failed to enter the kingdom of God and were condemned as Jesus condemned Capernaum. That was the case then and it continues to be the case now but I'm very pleased to say that it's actually really simple to know how to have your greatest need met. If you're someone on this end of the spectrum who doesn't even identify as a follower of Jesus yet In order to become a part of the kingdom of God, it just requires the two things he said back in verse 14 and 15. It requires repenting and believing. Repenting is a turning to God away from your sin. Have you repented of your sin? And do you believe in Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life, the one who speaks for God because he is God and he is the one that God has put in charge over all people and all things. He's the one that God has put in charge over the kingdom of God that will extend into all eternity, unlike any of the kingdoms of this world. Basically, have you said, God, I don't want me to be the boss of my life anymore. I want Jesus, Lord of my life, and thank you so much that he can forgive me from my sins. If you haven't done that, do it today. For us, the church, who are living in and for the kingdom a really important thing to remember is that there's no such thing as living in, this is how I put it, there's no such thing as living in parallel to the kingdom. You see, it's not that God's great movement that he started with Jesus is kind of over here and my life is kind of here and every now and then I kind of dip in to the kingdom bit. I think we can be, be tempted to, to sort of think that's how it is, you know. It's not here's my bit, you know, I've got to work my job and I've got to look after my family. And over there is the Jesus bit. Well, I am my growth group and church and I'll kind of like, uh, I'm a member of the kingdom when I'm there and I'm a member of the world when I'm here. That's not a kingdom way of thinking. The kingdom way of thinking is actually all Jesus bit, right? The kingdom of God is thoroughly comprehensive. And the day will come where there ain't no... None of this stuff. It's, it's the kingdom of God will come to earth and as it is in heaven and, and it will be all there. So the real question when it comes to your job and your family or whatever is, well, how can I use my job to advance the kingdom? How can I uh, uh, respond and react and, and lead and, and, and relate in my family in a way that makes sense of the kingdom and particularly its advance? Uh, yeah, every now and then hear of people who they could have had a job uh, as a computer engineer but they'd be so, sort of in a room by themselves all day and they're, they're a follower of Jesus well that's no good, I'll become a taxi driver because then I can speak to heaps of people all the time I'll become a hairdresser so I can speak to people all the time about the good news of Jesus I, I don't need all the money that I would have got I, I'm going to think about how can I work in such a way that actually advances the kingdom that's just a normal Christian way of thinking Also, Jesus makes it clear that the kingdom grows through proclamation, what we call the ministry of the word. And I'm glad about that because I can't miraculously heal people of their illnesses and drive out demons. There are times I really wish I could, but uh, that's not for me. But I can speak the truth of the gospel. 
And I can do it formally and informally. And I can communicate the truth of God. And as a matter of fact, uh, though this idea has uh, come under fire as of late in some circles and you know, some upper echelons of, of theological nerdism, the reality is uh, that all Christians play a part in evangelism. All Christians play a part in the proclaiming of the truth of the kingdom of heaven. There is a difference between the ministry of the word and all other ministry. Now, that doesn't mean that, well, because Ben's an ordained uh, minister, that he's somehow more important for the kingdom than anyone else. That certainly, that does not follow from the importance of word ministry, right? Uh, as a matter of fact, if Ben's good at his words ministry, he'll know for sure he is definitely no more important than anyone else and he will preach that. But the way that our God has elected to grow his kingdom is through the verbal proclamation of the gospel, through the ministry of the word and prayer. And that stands apart from all other forms of Christian work and service. And so it is right, as followers of Jesus, as members of his kingdom, to ask, what can I do for the sake of the word of God and prayer. Could I take a demotion, work one day less per week so I can teach scripture in the local primary school? What a wonderful thing to consider. Uh, could I make sure that I'm home a little bit earlier, at least one night of the week, so I can read the Bible with my kids, if you've got kids? Uh, could I think about doing theological training and education and think about the possibility of vocational gospel ministry. Could I do what 3,000-odd people were sort of thinking about and celebrating last week, the kind of work that, that sees me go overseas to proclaim the truth about the kingdom of God? Uh, the world will think you're nuts, which is generally a good indication that uh, Jesus thinks it's a good idea. Brothers and sisters, keep those things on the radar, especially for the year 2024. Let me conclude in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who in reality removes the cause of our fallenness by taking our sin upon himself on the cross and giving us a new and a right relationship with you and therefore peace with one another. Heavenly Father, we pray that in our lives we will prioritise the ministry of the word that we would expect you to continue to build your kingdom through the verbal proclamation of the gospel and that uh, you'd help us assess our, our lives, our relationships in a way that uh, does give priority to that most wonderful work. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.